Great to be with you once again, church. I want you to take your uh, Bibles. Actually, I don't know. If you use your Bibles, you're going to have to skip around pretty quick. You've got to be nimble of finger tonight uh, if you want to follow along in your, in your uh, Bible. We are going to have Scripture on the screen, but I'm going to be jumping around quite a bit tonight as we wind down our study that we have titled The Thoughts of God. We've been talking about the Bible. We've been talking about what it is, where it came from, uh, the method of delivery by which we have received it. We've talked about how it is, in fact, inspired, and that is defined as uh, God, through the Holy Spirit, imparting his word, his wisdom, to human authors that he has divinely selected, intentionally so, they receive his word and they have transcribed, putting pen to paper, the very thoughts of God. That is what your Bible is. It is the thoughts of God transcribed by men that he himself selected. And as a result of being the inspired word of God, it is by default what we call the inerrant word of God, which is to say that there are no errors in it. How many of you believe that the Bible has no errors in it? I am so overjoyed to see that. There are no mistakes in his word because a book reflects its author. Is that right? And so why is that important? Well, it's important. I was just reminded earlier before the service, I spoke with a a dear lady and she has lost a friend just this week, a dear, dear friend. But you know what, as we, as we reminded one another and we prayed together, I reminded her that in his word, we have the promise that we will see believers once again. If they know Jesus Christ, we don't really, Christians don't say goodbye, not really. We kind of say so long. We say see you later, amen? <laughs> because one day, what do we know from the word itself? First Thessalonians, the Lord himself will come with a shout with the trump of the archangel and the dead in Christ will rise first and we which are alive and remain will meet the Lord in the air. And what does it promise us? That together we will ever be with the Lord. Together we will always be with him. Never to part. We part temporarily now when someone leaves this earthly plane, but one day we will be united and we will never part again. And so when we say that the Bible has no errors in it, That gives us a confidence in promises like that, amen? And so we could trust this book. And yet, when we say that the Bible is in error, there are people who will approach us who will say, no, it's not. And they will rattle off what they think are a litany of rather convincing arguments as to why the Bible has error and mistakes. And they like to pose those to Christians. How many of you have ever been confronted by somebody who's trying to say that the Bible is rife with error and they they cite examples? Have you encountered that? Now, be honest. How many of you didn't really know how to respond to that, quite frankly? That's okay. I've been there. I've been there. And so it can be intimidating. And so in your notes, the first thing I want to address is this question. What should I do when someone approaches me with an alleged, and I say alleged, Bible error or contradiction, what do I do with that? Well, I'll tell you what you don't do. What you don't do is you don't pretend you know the answer if you don't know the answer. 
That's, that's going to get you nowhere, okay? Bluffing your way through challenges to the Word of God if you don't know exactly what you're saying or talking about is never a good strategy. They'll see right through it. And for, furthermore, it's lying and God doesn't want us to lie. And so what is the proper perspective? You say, that's an interesting point. I don't know off the top of my head, but I tell you what, I'm going to study that and I'll get back to you. And so what we do, number one in your notes, is we prayerfully study the scriptures to see if there is a simple solution. Nine times out of 10, guys, there is a solution and it's right there in the word. It's all about uh, interpretations. It's a matter of hermeneutics. It's how we interpret and understand the Bible. And so that's number one. Number two, uh, if you have done that and you have not figured out what the solution is, you can do some research using some of the fine resources that are available outside. They're extra biblical resources. Sometimes it helps to glean from the wisdom and the intellect of some godly people who have done the study, who have dug deep. And so there are fine Bible commentaries, there are apologetics resources, there are biblical websites that are for this purpose, to help answer questions. I can recommend some of them. Uh, there's, there's a site called gotquestions.org. I visit that site frequently. I find it to be very trustworthy. There's a friend of mine who's an apologist. His name is Charlie Campbell, and he has a site that he created called alwaysbeready.com, and they, he addresses supposed Bible contradictions on that website. So there are uh, wonderful things online. The internet can be a curse, it can also be a blessing. And so we, we can do that. And then number three, what you could do is you can ask a pastor. Sometimes we're good for something, all right, occasionally. And I am used to this. Some of you have already done this. You've, you've posed questions to me. I'm used to that. In my last church, I got phone calls. I got text messages. I got emails about a variety of topics. And I, I, I oversaw young adults ministry for years and years and years. And they are loaded with questions, and I'm not afraid of questions uh, because I know that the Bible, uh, the Bible, God is not afraid of questions. David asked questions all the live long day, if you read David. And so God's not uh, intimidated by that, offended by that, neither am I. Doesn't mean I'm going to have all the answers for you. I will probably say, that's very interesting. I'm going to study that and I'll get back to you. That's probably what I'll say. But I think any pastor worth his salt is going to be willing uh, to have a conversation about it and to deepen and all that. And if you've done all three of those things and you still feel like you've gotten nowhere, you can, number four, simply trust that the Bible is God's word and it is truth and that a solution has simply not been realized, all right? Uh, just because you don't immediately find an answer when someone challenges the veracity, the historicity, uh, the validity of scripture does not mean that you take your Bible, throw it in the trash, renounce Christ, and embark on a life of secularism, okay? We don't need to do that because we come with the understanding, the assumption, and, and by faith we say that the word of God is exactly that. It's from him, it is true, and he has preserved it, and he has protected it, and it can be profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, all of the things that he says in his scripture. We base our lives on this book. And just simple little challenges should not send our hearts into a fluttery state, okay? And I would also say this, a lot of times when people challenge the scriptures and they pose a challenge to you, uh, they're not doing so out of a spirit of, of genuinely seeking truth. 
Quite often, they've made their mind up. They're a skeptic. They've got an ax to grind. There's, there's some beef they've got with organized religion or maybe against God himself, and they're just trying to find a way to undermine all of that. And it would not matter if you came back with a very satisfactory answer. They're not gonna necessarily believe, okay? And so we've gotta be cautious as we proceed. Uh, often they say, I don't believe the Bible because it's got all those errors in it. I think a good question you could come back to them with is, oh, so you've read the Bible. And if they say yes, your follow-up question can be, well, that's, that's wonderful. Would you mind sharing with me what you feel the major theme of the Bible is? And I'm just gonna guess that they're not gonna have anything for you or they're gonna have something wrong. They're gonna have something they're just making up off the top of their head because they probably have not read the Bible. They certainly haven't read all of it and they have not avoided reading it because it's got errors in it. They've avoided reading it because they don't want to read it, okay? And so what does God expect of us? Well, I think he expects what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. You know, we're to do what Peter says. In 1 Peter 3, 15, he says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We just gotta be ready. Uh, that website, always be ready. It's based on this, 1 Peter three fifteen. And so what I wanna do tonight is have a little fun. I, I, I want to take a look at some of these common passages that we encounter, that people cite as examples of contradiction, of error, uh, of mistakes in the word of God. Let's just take a look at some of these. They're, they're listed there on the notes, on the handout that you got. Now listen, I, I've looked at them and I'm, I'm, I'm well-intentioned and I'm probably a little overzealous. I'm probably not gonna get through all of them tonight, okay? So you might have a few at the end there that we're not gonna touch this evening. It's okay. Uh, I plan on being here a while and so we'll get around to it at some point, okay? But we'll, let's just take a look and journey through this. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon our time together, Lord. It, it, to me, there's really nothing more fun than to open up the Bible and to drink deep and to explore and to have an adventurous spirit. Give us an adventurous spirit tonight. Give us uh, the mind and the heart and the ambition of a detective tonight, God, uh, that we might plumb the depths of your word and that you might show us things uh, that the world uh, might be befuddled about. And so I just ask for your spirit to be with us as we read and understand in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's look at some of these examples right here. As we start, I just wanna say one thing. When we talk about biblical inerrancy, that the Bible doesn't have any errors in it, what I'm speaking of is the scripture in its original languages in the original manuscript. So when those divinely appointed human authors put pen to paper and they wrote what God intended them to write, there was no error in that writing, okay? Now, as that is transcribed, uh, errors are allowable over the years. The only thing that we, that we attribute inerrancy to, inspiration to, is the original manuscripts in which those authors wrote, transcribed the, the thoughts of God. 
which is the title of our series, okay? So I just wanna say that off the top because some of the examples that we're gonna give, that comes into play. Now let's look at our first example that is cited as contradictory here or problematic, and it's this. It's the idea of Adam eating of the tree and not dying. Have you ever wondered about that? God said what? Well, in Genesis 2, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's what he said. Seems pretty black and white. Now, did did Adam eat of the tree? He did. He did. Did he die? Did he die? Okay. Uh, Well, did he physically die? He did not physically die in that day. He died later, as we all do. How much later? Well, an awful long time later. Genesis 6, 5 says, thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Well, good night. Not only did he not die that day, he lived almost 1,000 years. What in the world was in that apple, huh? Or whatever it was. (laughs) Well, Adam ate of the tree. Did he die? Now, some of you may have conjured up a solution in your mind. You may have thought to yourself, ah, he died spiritually. That's, that. see, he died spiritually, not just a hat rack, folks. He died spiritually. Well, you're not wrong. He did indeed die, uh, die spiritually. He did indeed. Uh, and he would die physically. In fact, he was, I'm one who, who thinks that perhaps Adam would not have died, ever perhaps. He was created perfect. Um, he, he, was, he was of superhuman caliber compared to what you and I are, certainly what I am. And uh, he was able to do things that we cannot. He named all the animals in a day. How, How do you do that if you're just a normal Joe? So Adam was special, but in the day that he sinned, he began to die. He began to die. And one day he did, 930 years later, he died. And every descendant of Adam has died, except for Enoch and Elijah, right? And we are his descendants and we will all die unless, of course, the Lord comes back and he takes us to glory with him. But this is part of the curse of sin is that his sin was imputed to us is what that is called. And so we, as a result, taste physical death, okay? But that doesn't really solve our problem here. What God said was, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, I'm big on literal interpretation. The more you listen to me, you'll understand that. I I do not come to the Bible and take it symbolically right off the bat. I read it, take it literally, take it at face value. Where there's figurative language, that, that is obvious to us. God gave us a wonderful thing called a brain. And we can recognize symbolism when we see it. There's no reason to... Uh, 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 impose symbolism upon this text. He says, in the day you will eat of it. When God says you shall surely die, what, what he means by that, scholars say, is that you shall surely die. That's what that means. It's physical death. And he says, in the day you eat of it, you will die. That is what Adam and Eve believed. That is a natural, logical expectation on their part. So to take God at his word would mean that if Adam disobeyed by eating of the tree... That day, he's a goner. That's what the expectation would be. Why didn't he die? Here's the answer in your notes. The solution. You can jot this down. God provided a substitute. Does that sound like something God would do? 
He's done that throughout history. He's, he's presented that picture. And then ultimately, we got the ultimate substitute, didn't we? Look at Genesis 3, 21. It says, and the Lord God, made, this is after the fall, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them, okay? Somebody died. Who died? Some animals died. God took an animal or animals, we don't know, perhaps a lamb, perhaps something else, and he shed the blood of that animal and he covered the nakedness and the shame of, of the guilty pair, Adam and Eve, right there. And in so doing, he presented Adam and Eve with an important picture, an important theme that would prove prominent throughout all of the Bible, certainly through the Old Testament, in the imagery of the law and the system of ritual and sacrifice, okay? Even as early as Cain and Abel, they're sacrificing. Cain brings his veggies. God says, nope, it's not what I'm looking for. Abel brings his, it's accepted by God. What is it? It's, it's the choice of his flock. It is the spotless uh, lamb, the, the firstborn of his flock. God says, that's what I'm looking for because God set the rule. God laid the standard down for Adam and Eve. And this important concept is that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. And so in that moment, so that Adam and Eve would not die, he presents a visual lesson that it, it takes the shedding of blood. And this points ahead, as did all the sacrifices of the Old Testament to Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, amen? And so this is why. So when people say that, you say, that is a picture that God did. He shed blood for them so that they would not die. Did they spiritually die? They did. Would they eventually physically die? Yes. The reason they didn't immediately die is that God, God made a sacrifice on their behalf. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. So we can move on, right? Okay, there's one down. All right, we're moving on. The next problem in your notes is, is this question. Was Abraham justified by faith or works? Is that, is that a controversy? Well, you got to start with Romans. Here's what Paul says. Chapter 4, verse 1. What then? Shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's quoting from Genesis right there. Uh, and then if you drop down to verse 10, he goes on, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? We talked about circumcision in here during our Ephesian study a few weeks ago. It was a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And it was a command that you must be circumcised as a sign of the covenant. And so to be circumcised was, was a work of obedience on the part of Abraham. And Paul's saying, was he, was he accounted righteousness by God? Was he justified? Was he declared righteous before the Lord, before his circumcision or after his circumcision? And he says what? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by what? By faith while he was still uncircumcised. Abraham was considered righteous by God before he was obedient, okay? Because it was faith. Now that faith produced obedience, but he was not righteous because of his obedience, which means he was not righteous because of works. That's what Paul says. 
Are we all in agreement with Paul on that? Okay, well, we got a problem because James, in James 2, verse 14 says the following. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving him, them, the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And then look at verse 21. He brings up Abraham too. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, got a problem. It would appear. You've got the apostle Paul, possibly the greatest Christian who ever lived. Abraham was justified by faith, not works. Hmm? If you recall, Paul in Ephesians, for by grace you're saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now you got James, the brother of Jesus, hello, saying, uh-uh, Abraham is justified by works and not faith alone. Man, this is perplexing. Let me ask you a question. Can you have a wrong view of works? You can have a wrong view of works. If I ask you, are you gonna to go to heaven when you die? You say, yes, I'm gonna say, why? And you're gonna say, well, I'm generally a pretty good person. Is that the biblical answer? Uh, no, no. For by grace, you're saved through faith, not, not of works. It's not you. If it was you, Jesus didn't need to die on a cross, did he? Right? So you gotta you got have faith. You're justified by faith. By grace through faith, Right? Okay, can you have a wrong view of faith? You can have a wrong view of works. You know, you can think that you're saved by it. That's the wrong view. Can you have a wrong view of faith? What if you said, I'm gonna go to heaven because I believe Jesus is the son of God? All right, you believe that? Yeah, yeah, I believe, I believe that. Okay, well, you know, the Bible also says that the demons believe that and tremble. Are demons going to heaven? No. See, you can believe all the right theological things, but what are we looking for here? Here's the solution in your notes. James is describing two kinds of faith, dead faith and living faith. What's the difference? Dead faith cannot save. He says, can dead faith save a man? No. No, it cannot. Why not? Because it's dead. It's good for nothing. It has no works. Okay? What about living faith? Can it save? Yes. It saves. It's a living faith. It's an authentic faith. How do you know it's authentic? It has works. It produces something. Why? Because it's alive. Something alive produces something. Something dead produces nothing. You see? You can have a dead faith. And that is not a faith that saves. 
Everybody's got some form of faith. It's just, is it a real faith? Is it a living faith? If it's a living faith, it's gonna produce good works. And so James is arguing against a wrong view of faith. Paul is actually arguing against a wrong view of faith and a wrong view of works. And so as far as Abraham goes, James is focusing on his faith, which produces work. Did Abraham get circumcised? Yes, he did. He wasn't justified because he got circumcised, but his faith led him to be obedient, right? So when we're born again, we don't continue to live however we want and be just hunky-dory with that, okay? All right, I, I'm, I'm born again. Does that mean I get to sleep with whoever I want? No, Paul says, should I sin so that grace may abound? Certainly not. And so real faith is transformative. Warren Wiersbe said, uh, no one can come into contact with Jesus Christ and remain unchanged any more than he can come into contact with a 220 volt wire and remain unchanged, all right? It is revolutionary. And so that's your answer. We got two different kinds of faith. They're not in disagreement, you see. Even Paul, uh, for by grace you're saved through faith, not of works, but then he goes on to say later in the same passage, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to what? To do good works, right? And so works are certainly a part of the life and the experience of the authentic, genuine believer. Okay, next problem. How about this one? David kills Goliath twice. Did you know that was a thing? You say he killed him twice, what in the world? Well, take a look, this is, this is crazy. First Samuel 17, verse 49, and David put his hand in his bag, this is the big moment, right? Took out a stone, slung it, struck the Philistine on his forehead, the stone, uh, stone sank in his forehead, he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine, verse 50, with a sling and a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him, killed him. With what? With a sling and a stone. Not a sword? Nope. It says, there was no sword in the hand of David. Killed him with a sling and a stone. Okay? He's dead. All right? Now, look at verse 51. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him. What? And cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw this, their champion was dead, they fled. All right, what, 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 wait a minute. He killed him and then he killed him again? What, is this the walking dead? What's going on? Goliath just like comes to life and we gotta, what is this? Well read at face value, we've got two back-to-back -back verses that give us this curious notion that David has killed him twice. First he kills him with a sling and a stone and then he kills him again with the sword. How do we reconcile this? All right. Well, this is one of those where you get into the language a little bit. You get into the Hebrew. Old Testament passage. So you look at the word for killed. It's the Hebrew word muth. All right? Which means to die or to kill. It's also like mortality. Some, something like that. And so in Hebrew, there are different forms in which these words appear. You have the same word in different forms and it has different connotations. And so in verse 50, muth is in what is called the hephil form, the hephil form. And it should be interpreted as being struck down with a mortal wound, a mortal wound. That's verse 50. Verse 51, same word is in what's called the polel form, polel. And that should be interpreted as a mortal blow. You say, what's the difference? Mortal wound, mortal blow. Okay, mortal wound would be 
if, if someone shoots you, maybe they shoot you in the gut, all right? And you're a goner, like you're not long for this earth. It's a mortal wound. You will die. You know, maybe you get shot in the head. You're not dead yet, but you're as good as dead, okay? It's a mortal wound. You, you'll, you'll, you'll expire from this, okay? A mortal blow, decapitation, all right? That's, that's done. There's, there, we're not waiting for the end to come. It, the end is here, all right? You're not gonna grow a new head. That's, these are, one is as good as dead, the other is you dead. All right, so that's what we've got here. And in your notes, the solution is the Hebrew implies either blow would have been fatal, either one. If David had, you know, he, Goliath fell, if he'd have just laid there, he'd have died, probably within seconds or minutes. But apparently, even though that was a mortal wound, it sank into his forehead. I mean, you're not coming back from that. David must have recognized there was still some life in the giant. And so he comes over, he takes his sword. And by the way, he prophesied that he would do this. He said this to Goliath earlier, I will cut off your head. And so this is the fulfillment of prophecy uttered just moments before. And so he kills him for good, right? Which is a wise thing to do. If you've seen a horror movie, you know, the killer always jumps up and you know, you gotta double tap that guy. That's, that's, just, that's just how it goes, all right? So let's move on. New problem. Saul's death, we're talking about King Saul, not Saul of Tarsus. Saul's death, what was it, suicide or murder? Oh, interesting, interesting. So we start in 1 Samuel 31, and this is an account of the defeat of Israel in battle uh, at the hands of the Philistines. You got King Saul there, he, is, he ends up dead, three of his sons end up dead. Here's the account, verse one. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. That's in Israel, I've been there. Uh, verse two, the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him and he was badly wounded by the archers and then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But the armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. And thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. So, not a happy story, but that's the account. And it ties it up with a bow. This is how Saul died right there. And then you get to 2 Samuel. And you've got another account of the same event uh, through the eyes of a guy that is encountered by David. David. And so David, he finds this survivor of the battle, apparently. And here's what is said in 2 Samuel 1, verse 4. David said to him, how to go? Uh, tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Geboa and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, 
the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him and he looked behind him, he saw me and he called to me and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me for anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. And so I stood beside him and I killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm and I have brought them to you, my Lord. And I can just imagine the pomp and circumstance as he presents David with the crown and the armlet of Saul. Very different accounts from a detailed perspective. So the question here really is this. Is this Amalekite guy lying or telling the truth? That's the question. Because if he's telling the truth, then the first account's got some, got some errors. And that means the Bible's not inerrant, right? In your notes, this Amalekite is lying like a dog, all right? He is lying. Why do we say that? Well, first of all, here's, there's several reasons, okay? You can jot these down or not, don't care. But here's one reason. He doesn't mention the armor bearer. Saul most assuredly had an armor bearer. Certainly he is mentioned in 1 Samuel. We see there that the armor bearer witnessed Saul dying from a self-inflicted wound. The armor bearer's job is to protect his master. So if this Amalekite shows up, he's not an Israelite. They are sworn enemies of the Israelites. He certainly would have fought that guy. He definitely would not have let him take Saul's crown, even if Saul was dead. So we know that the armor bearer was still alive when Saul died. This guy says he saw Saul die. And so they both would have been alive at the same time, but there's no mention of the armor bearer. Secondly, if this Amalekite's account is true, then he's describing Saul leaning on his spear. Well, that is odd because Saul has been hit by many arrows, all right? He has subsequently chosen to fall on his own sword. And so he's on the ground supposedly dead. Now let's just say there's a theory that the armor bearer was mistaken and that he investigated. Uh, We're told that he verified that Saul was dead. Maybe he was wrong and he just assumed Saul was dead, kills himself like Romeo or Juliet or one of them, right? And And then Saul, turns out he's not dead and he gets up, pulls the sword out of himself, leans on a spear and just has a conversation with this Amalekite. Is that likely? I think not. I think not. And the interesting thing is, if he's willing to do that, would not the Amalekite uh, try to get him to safety somewhere, uh, to to be patched up or whatnot? But then he tells David, he goes, I was sure that he was a goner. I was sure he was not going to make it, and that's why I had to kill him. Very interesting. It's also unlikely that Saul would ask an uncircumcised foreigner like this Amalekite To kill him. I mean, the whole reason he asked his armor bearer to kill him is because these Philistines are uncircumcised pagans. Well, there's no difference between the Amalekites and the Philistines in the eyes of the Jew uh, in terms of their culture, their idolatry, you know, all of this stuff. Uh, It would have been anathema. It would have been inconceivable for Saul to die by the hand of this Amalekite. Um, The Amalekite never mentions that Saul was was, uh, pierced with arrows, okay, that he took all those arrows. That never comes up. I would think that would be an important detail if he's trying to convince David that, you know, I only killed him because I knew that he wasn't going to survive. I mean, you might want to add in there, he he looked like a pincushion. I mean, he had arrows coming out. So there was nothing like that. 
Uh, also, he says, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. I was just in the neighborhood. There's a battle going on. All right? He's in the neighborhood. He's just passing through. He just was just chancing upon Paul. Saul is being pursued by chariots by his own admission. I don't think that this whole thing could have even transpired in the time uh, that would have been limited by this pursuit. Uh, they're hot on Saul's heels by his own story. Just, it doesn't add up. Here's the likely scenario. Saul dies by his own hand. The Philistines have no idea. It's getting dark. They probably assume Saul has retreated back uh, behind the battle lines. And so they probably disperse. They're gonna come back because they do find his body the next day. We read that. We see that happen. So it's, it's nighttime. This Amalekite is a looter, okay? He's picking these dead bodies clean. He's taking weaponry and, and, and baubles and what, whatever, whatever he can gather. That's, that's what happened. He comes upon the body of Saul. He sees the crown, recognizes it's the king. He knows David is a rival of Saul. I'm gonna get in David's good graces by taking the crown of Saul and presenting it to David. And he comes up with this cockamamie story. Does David believe the story? I don't think so. Look at uh, 2 Samuel 1, 16. And David said to him, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you saying I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David proceeds to have this man killed. Okay? Uh, you'll notice he never says I'm gonna kill you because you've killed the Lord's anointed. He never says that. He says your, your, your own mouth has testified against you saying. But he, he never indicates that he buys this Story. Furthermore, if he believes this guy is telling the truth, there's no reason to kill the guy. So obviously, he's killing him because he's a liar and he's a looter. And he's disrespected Saul and he's disrespected David. All right? So that is, that is a solution to that particular problem. Let me, let me look at another one here. The next problem is, is the notion that Herod died before the census in Luke chapter two. So if you recall in Luke two, that is the narrative of the birth of Christ. And Luke says in verse one of chapter two, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his hometown and Joseph went up from Galilee, which was the town of Nazareth, to the city of David, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary. So we've got this narrative that's being set up. Now, there, what you need to understand is there are categories, there are different categories of alleged uh, contradictions in the Bible. As we've seen, there will, you'll have two passages that seem to contradict one another, okay? Then you might have a passage that appears to have some historical inconsistencies this falls into that category and it's a big one because there's really no slam dunk there's really no obvious solution to this okay and so for that reason it gets brought up a lot as an example of error in scripture bottom line Luke is using this census that happened under Quirinius who happened to be the governor of Syria at the time okay he's using that as the backdrop as the means to get Joseph and Mary to Joseph's ancestral hometown so that they could be counted 
as part of the census. And, uh, and therefore, Jesus would be born in the city of David, which is Bethlehem, as prophesied in the Old Testament, fulfilling the prophetic obligation of the Messiah. And he also makes sure that we know in this account that it happens during the reign of Herod the Great, okay? Who is the, the, the Idumean ruler. He's the, he's the procurator. He's the, he's the guy that the Romans have installed over Judea, the king of Judea, okay? That's all in Luke's narrative right there, all that historical context. Here's the problem. Um, historically, the census of Quirinius is recorded as being in 6 AD, Herod the Great, who supposedly was alive when Jesus was born, historians say that he died nine years before the census. So we got a, we got a little bit of a problem here, all right? So how do we deal with this? Well, what you should know is that there's very little fragmentary data regarding this census. Uh, there, there are no inscriptions on any monuments, there's no, there's no papyri, there's no fragments, there's nothing, uh, no physical evidence about this particular, the only thing, the only way we know about it is through the writings of a historian named Josephus, okay? So Josephus uh, recorded about this census and also recorded that Herod died nine years before it happened. And so it's all based on the word of Josephus, and so either Josephus is right or Luke is right, but not both. So that is the contradiction, supposedly. That is the historical discrepancy in this particular writing that people allege. Now, how do we deal with this? Well, you can jot these down in your notes. There's a, there's a few options here. There are some possible solutions. The first one is that historians got the census date wrong, which means Josephus. Josephus got the date wrong. Okay, that is the first and most obvious possibility that Josephus misdated the census and Luke got it right. And people go, eh, Luke got it right. Josephus, historian, got it wrong. Luke got it right. I don't know about that. Well, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Uh, why is that so hard to believe? First of all, your options are you believe the Bible or you believe this human guy who is a historian. Can historians ever get anything wrong? Does that happen? Well, you know, read the 1619 Project. Anyway, I digress. Luke, first of all, what you need to know is Luke is a first-rate historian, okay? He wrote the Gospel of Luke. He wrote the Book of Acts. He's incredibly detailed, incredibly meticulous. And so what we've got is, is a guy who is a physician. Physicians are detailed, at least you want them to be. And so he is top, top notch, okay? So that's one possibility is that Josephus got it wrong. Another possibility is that the translators rendered the passage wrong. The translators, uh, they wrote the wrong word because some scholars suggest that in, the, in the, the verse that I read, it said this is the first census. Well, the word for first is similar to another word that means before, okay? And so... Their contention is that Luke is implying that the birth of Christ transpired before the census. Well, now if that's true, then Luke and Josephus, they're in agreement. They don't have any problems. They're not contradicting each other at all. And, uh, and so there's that. Now, that, that theory's got some problems, but it's not impossible. And then the third possibility is that this governor of Syria, Quirinius, that he governed Syria twice. 
on two occasions. There is uh, an inscription, it's a well-known inscription in honor of a man who governed Syria twice. He is unnamed, but it could be Quirinius. And so Luke says, I mean, he literally says, this was the first census, which implies what? There was a second census, all right? And so there could have been, during two different reigns, a census, okay? So that is a possibility as well. That would eliminate any discrepancy between Luke and Josephus. And then the fourth possibility is that the census began while Herod was alive. So he died before the census, certainly before the census was completed. These things would have taken time. I mean, think about it. You're counting every person on the, in the known world. Would that take a little bit of time in the ancient world? Absolutely. Years, for sure. And so it could have begun while Herod was still alive and uh, Jesus, of course, be born during that time and then Herod dies after the fact and then the census is completed, okay? So there, re- the, there really is no slam dunk solution, but there's no reason also to go off half cocked and, and renounce Christ and, and give up and say, oh, I guess my faith is crumbling. Uh, no, there's no reason for that. Uh, in fact, let me just say this too. There's a church father by the name of Justin Martyr Anybody ever heard of Justin Martyr? Justin Martyr, in the second century, uh, he, he wrote something and he was talking about uh, the messianic prophecies, how the Old Testament prophesied that, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. You, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are least in the clans of Judah, you know, from you will come a great king. So he says this verbatim. He says, there is a village in the land of the Jews, 35 stadia from Jerusalem, in which Jesus Christ was born. As you can ascertain also from the registers of the taxing made under Serenius, your first procurator in Judea. In other words, Justin Martyr is saying, you want proof that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, thus fulfilling the prophecy of the Old Testament? Go down there and look at the records of the census and you will see his family in the registry because it's there right now. Now it's not there today because it's thousands of years later, but in Justin Martyr's day in the second century, it was there by what he's saying. So that, that kind of takes care of the problem. And so uh, that's kind of an interesting solution to that. Let me, let me give you another one here. This is called the Gerasene slash Gadarene Demoniac Incident. That sounds like the title of a Guns N' Roses album. All right, what in the world is this? If you've ever, maybe you've heard of the Gadarene Demoniac, okay? That's a story In the New Testament, uh, it's a story uh, where Jesus encounters a demon-possessed man who lives among the tombs, and he's kind of a wild man, and uh, he cuts himself with stones, and they've tried to chain him, but he's supernaturally strong because he's demon-possessed and all this stuff. And there are multiple accounts of that story. There are three, okay? And the way that it is presented in the book of Matthew, it reads like this, Matthew 8 Uh, 28, it says, and when he came to the other side, this is Jesus, to the country of the Gadarenes, two, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? And so the story goes on and, and, and points out that Jesus cast the demons out of them and he, he, he lets the demons go into a herd of swine, a herd of pigs, Okay. And these pigs go crazy and they, they plunge off into the sea and they're all drowned. 
So that's just a lot of Carolina barbecue wasted right there. <laughs> that's how Matthew presents the story. Now in the book of Mark, it's a little different. See if you can pick up on the difference. Mark 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. Well, now wait a minute. Okay, okay, wait a minute. Hold on. Matthew said the Gadarenes. This is the Gerasenes. Those are two different places, okay? The, the Gadarenes are from a place called Gadara. The Gerasenes are from Gerasa. Different, completely different places uh, on, on, on differing sides of the Sea of Galilee. It says in, in verse two, when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man. How many is that? A man, singular, with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, okay? And it goes on, and the difference here is that this, this is a much more personal account with this guy. Jesus asked him his name. He says, my name is Legion, right? For we are many, okay? There was all these demons inside him speaking collectively to Christ. I am Legion, okay? Kind of creepy, very sh shades of the exorcist, okay? But the same story plays out with the pigs and all that stuff. So there's another account in Luke and it's presented pretty much the same as Mark presents it. So Luke and Mark agree, the difference being, Matthew says it's in the country of the Gadarenes, it's two guys, Mark and Luke say Gerasenes, one guy. All right, how do we deal with this? Well, let's start with the location issue first. Uh, is it Gadara or Gerasa? What I've read is that scholars believe that Gadara is the place, like that is the one to go with because of the rendering in the Synoptic Gospels. In the Hebrew alphabet, the shape of the D, which would be called a Daleth, a Daleth uh, and the shape of the R, called a, a, a Resh, very similar. So Gadara is in close proximity to Gennesaret, which is where the pigs drowned. And so it's more likely the correct choice. And so in your notes here, the location issue appears to be a scribal error. So you remember I told you that to be inerrant does not mean that it's, it's without error uh, across all translations, across all scribal copying. No, we're talking about original languages, original manuscript, the first uh, time that that author that God selected wrote it down, it was without error then. Scribes would copy it and there would be occasionally an error. We talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, which are, which are Hebrew. And there, there are slight errors in there, not many, not many. And you gotta know that. There are very, very, very few scribal errors, but this appears to be one of them. Now, what about the difference in the number? You got two guys in one story, you got one guy in the other two stories. Um, I guess the question here is, is this really that big of a problem? I mean, if there are two, then there is at least one, right? I mean, it, does it go without saying that in Mark and in Luke that there weren't two? No, it just only mentions one. Have you guys ever met a couple of people and then, and then later you're, you're telling so-and-so, hey, you know what, I met a guy, and you, you say their, their name, but you, you don't mention the other person. Has that ever happened? Why, why would you do that? Is one of them maybe more memorable? Could happen. 
it's quite possible that one of these guys was more memorable. Maybe the one who said, my name is Legion, for we are many. I would remember that. I would wake up in the middle of the night remembering that, right? And so I don't know that we've got much of a problem here. And so what we have in your notes, the difference in the number of maniacs <laughs> is not an error. It's just a matter of omission or focus, okay? Easy. See what I'm saying? More often than not, there's a simple explanation for these contradictions, a simple explanation. I'm, I'm just going to do one more here, okay? Uh, the other two have to do uh, with events surrounding the crucifixion, resurrection. We got Easter coming up in a few months. Maybe we'll, we'll cover some of that in the unpacking of, of that account. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this one uh, right here, and then we'll call it a night, okay? Conflicting accounts about Judas' death and the potter's field, all right? There are a couple different tellings, retellings about how Judas, the, the, the betrayer of Christ, how his life came to an end and, uh, and where he was buried and how that field was obtained. So in Matthew 27, verse three, it says, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind uh, and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed, he went out and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, they said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. And so they took counsel and they bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a piece had been set by some of the sons of Israel and they gave them for the potter's field. And so this is, this is prophetically uh, predicted in the Old Testament that this would happen, not just that Christ would be betrayed, but that there would be money given to his betrayer, blood money, and ultimately that money would be used to purchase the potter's field. That's prophesied in the Old Testament. So they fulfilled prophecy by doing this, okay? Uh, I've been to Jerusalem. Um, uh, I, I, I believe it's, it's outside the old city. Um, you can see it from uh, the, the house of Caiaphas, who was the high priest in those days. You see a valley, and you see um, uh, kind of a, a cliffside with some sad-looking trees, you know, kind of hanging over it. And so it is believed that the, that the field down below is, is, is traditionally this field, the field of blood, the potter's field, akel dama in the Hebrew. Um, and so it, it, is, it is said that, that possibly Judas hung himself from one of the high overlooking trees to that field down below, that that is where Jesus, or excuse me, Judas hanged himself. So I've just read you one account. Now check out, another account. This is Stephen in the book of Acts. And he gives a testimony. In Acts chapter 1, verse 16, it says, excuse me, it's verse 18. He says, now this man, talk about Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open. Now this is going to be a little gross, all right? He burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Yikes. 
And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akel Dama. That is the field of blood. I don't remember if that's Hebrew or Aramaic, but Akel Dama, the field of blood. Okay. <laughs> You'll notice some differences in this story. In the first story, Judas hangs himself. And the priests take the money and buy the field. In this story, Judas buys the field and then goes and he falls and he, he, his bowels erupt, okay? In that nasty account right there. So there are two questions here. Did Judas die by hanging or falling? That's one question. And then number two, did Judas buy the field or did the priest buy the field? That's what we gotta know. So to the, let's take the first question. How did Judas die? Here's how we reconcile the facts. He hangs himself in the potter's field, okay? He commits suicide by hanging. That's how he died. As his body hung there, it, begun, it begins to decay. This is what dead bodies do over time if they're unattended. He begins to bloat. And at some point, either the rope breaks or the branch of the tree breaks or something like that. Maybe he's cut down, I don't know. And his body falls headlong into this field down below and when he makes impact, he bursts open in the land of the potter's field and it's called the field of blood, which makes, makes a lot of sense. Otherwise, there's no explanation. People don't die by falling. Have you ever fallen down and you exploded? <laughs> it's never happened to me. Uh, I'm hoping that never does happen. So this is the logical explanation right here. And so in your notes, hanging or falling, uh, Matthew focuses on the actual cause of death. Luke focuses on the aftermath, okay? On the aftermath. Now to the second question, who paid for the field? Because Stephen says it was Judas. Matthew says it was the priests. So he, there's a couple of options here. Option number one, Judas was promised the 30 pieces of silver uh, several days before, which we know that was true. Uh, Mark 14, 11, and when they'd heard it, they were glad and they promised to give him money and he sought an opportunity to betray him. So he knew he was coming into some money. How, do you guys ever make plans for your money? If you know you're gonna get money, you ever start thinking about what you might wanna do with that money? Is that a thing? I think that's a thing. Certainly a thing at our house. Um, because my wife is all over it. She's like, I know exactly what we're gonna do. So sometime, this is one option. Sometime in the days before the betrayal of Jesus, Judas makes arrangements to purchase this field. That's, he's, he's gonna buy a field. Uh, but no money has yet been transferred. That's a possibility. So once the betrayal occurs, he's paid, has a change of heart, returns the money to the chief priest, but the transaction has already begun. There's a deal in place. That's one option. Option two, when Judas throws the 30 pieces of silver down, the priest, they take the money and they use it to buy the potter's field. And even though Judas did not personally buy the field as the, the compensated trader, it's still his money, okay? And that money, which is Judas's money, is used to purchase this field. Either way, uh, what you got in your notes is that the priest either completed a transaction Judas already started or bought it with his money. But that's, that is a field purchased by a man who would have been better off had he never been born, as scripture says. Sad, sad case right there. Well, I never thought I'd end a message on a gruesome plot point like that. So take that home with you. Enjoy a nice meal with your family. And... Uh, 
But, but why have we done this? We've, we've had a little fun with the scripture today uh, because this is a book worth defending. It's worth doing a little digging. Uh, somebody told me before the service, they say, uh, I've just been motivated lately to dig deeper, to study more. Folks, I, pff, you can't tell me anything that would make me happier than that right there. When people fall in love with the scripture and when they just want to know it more and, 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 and of course the ultimate goal is to know Christ more, you know, I, why, do, why do we read the Bible? Why can't it just be, you know, as many pastors say, you know, it's, it's not about the Bible, it's about Jesus. We just want to, well, absolutely it's about Jesus. Ultimately, it's about Jesus, it's about God. But, uh, you know, I love my wife, but I want to know everything about her. I want to know all there is about her. And so when we read his word, that's where we go to find out everything. I want to know about my wife's childhood. I want to know about friends of her. I want to know details like that. And, uh, and so when it comes to our relationship with the Lord, this is the revelation that we have been given. It is a revelation worth reading. It's a revelation worth understanding. It's a revelation worth defending. And I would say that we are to give a defense, but, but do this. Have discernment about who it is you're engaging discern their motivation because if they are not genuinely seeking truth, I think it's fine to answer questions. I think it's fine to field some of this stuff, but at some point, they may, they may just be interested in having a gotcha moment and that's about it. What are we to do with such people? They could be put into the category of Matthew 7, 6, which says, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. What does that mean? That means that there are people who have, who, whom God has given over because of their repeated rejection and unbelief. And we don't know who those people are, but through the discernment of the Holy Spirit, we can at least be good stewards of the time that God has given us on this earth. To yes, defend his word, but also recognize when someone is not willing to see the value. If you've ever taken something that you know is valuable and you take it to a pawn shop or you take it to a dealer and you put it before them and they do their own little personal appraisal and they offer you bupkis for it, you know? It's not worth your time to be there if you know what the value is. Sometimes we discern that people do not recognize and are not going to recognize the priceless nature of the revelation of God. And so with so many people in the world who are on their way to hell, we have to make a judgment call sometimes to walk away from the ones who have no interest and to go find the ones who are truly seeking that God, God can save because they have open ears and open hearts. Amen? Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon this group. May their hunger grow deeper and deeper and may they become more ravenous for truth. And I just pray your blessing upon them this week. We thank you for the, the gift of your word and may we be good stewards of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.